0: Today, uh, we're going to b- begin a series that uh, I had hoped that Pastor Brandon would do, um, and uh, he's, he's the storyteller of the two of us, okay? Uh, if you guys know me, I'm more of like a fact-driven kind of guy. I like systematic theology and things like that. Pastor Brandon is more of a biblical uh, theology or redemptive historical theology kind of guy. He likes to tell stories, and it's not, I'm not calling him a liar, mind you, and uh, some of you are like... Storytellers, yeah, no, no, no. What I mean is he likes to to bring the word to life through story. And storytelling is really one of the oldest forms of communication, isn't it? Both spoken and written. When you think about what they find in cave paintings and things like that, right? What are those communicating but stories? It's not just raw facts. We're not finding math and things like that on cave walls. Right? We're not just finding dates and times and things like that. No, we're, we're seeing stories being told. Because stories can convey history. They can convey morals, principles, or facts. They can be entertaining, engaging, emotional, or all three of those things. And we can kind of see this in children too, can't we? Think about kids. like When they get past the I need stage, then they begin to tell Stories. Some of y'all uh, have particularly talkative children, uh, and, uh, and so they'll come up to me sometimes and they'll start telling me a story, and I can't really understand them. You know, They have, they have their own language, right? Uh, I'm not very good at understanding different dialects. Uh, you parents understand them perfectly, I know, but like, I, I'm not so good at the child dialect thing. Uh, but they will come up to me, and you know how I can tell that they're telling me a story? They say, and then, I can hear those words, and then, and then, and then, They're telling me a story because as soon as they can string words together, they want to tell stories. And we try to encourage this, don't we? What did you do in kids' church today? What did you learn? Well, they might get to what what they learned, but they're going to tell you a story about what they did, right? Storytelling is a very effective way to pass knowledge from one generation to the next. Stories give us an emotional connection to the facts or principles that they contain, Stories cause our imaginations to create these vivid worlds in which the details of the circumstances of life come to life for us. Right? We see uh, different things that are going on in these stories and we imagine what they might look like. And in fact, our God is a storytelling God. You know how I know this? I look at the Word. Look at the Scriptures. How much of the Bible is storytelling? Storytelling. How much of it is narrative? Well, I did a little bit of research, and some people would say that over 40% of the Bible is narrative. This is split between the Old Testament writings, that's Genesis through Nehemiah, and then the Gospels, it's about 43%. But if you count the prophets as narrative, and I think you probably should as a literary style of narrative, then actually the number is closer to 75% of the scriptures are narrative. They're stories that we should learn by. God gives us these stories because he made us to enjoy and learn from stories. And so he condescends to us and he tells us these wonderful stories and tells us about what happened, tells us about different people, tells us about himself. For the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at two stories from the Old Testament. The first story here this week uh, is going to be on Noah. We were originally going to do Abraham, uh, but with Pastor Brandon uh, getting ill Uh, I wanted to give him the opportunity of maybe he wanted to do that instead of Samson next week, he could do that, or uh, we could do that some other time. Uh, But when I got to thinking about and praying about what I wanted to preach to this church, uh, I wanted to preach the story of Noah. It's an interesting story. Uh, And unfortunately, I don't have time today to read the entire story of Noah to you during the sermon. It's about three-ish chapters, depending on how you want to divide it up. So I'm hoping you're going to take that as homework, all right? Take it as homework. You want to write that down? You know, read Genesis 6 through 9, essentially, and, like, see what happens there. Get the details, right? It's a good thing. Look, uh, the the Puritans spent all day in worship on Sundays. The least you can do is read a little bit more Bible, all right? Like, you got the day off, you can worship. That's all right. So I'm not going to be able to get to everything in these passages this morning, but we're going to take some snippets out of the story. I'm kind of assuming that you're familiar, vaguely at least, with the story of Noah and the flood. Hopefully I'll be able to fill in some background by context. But it's an interesting story because I think we need to try to understand what God is trying to say through this story about a man, a flood, and a boat. Or, or is it really about that? Is it about a man, a flood, and a boat? I, I don't know how you've heard this story preached before, but I think it's really easy to make this story about a man, a flood, and a boat. But let's be real, those are the flashy parts. It's easy to get hooked into those things. But this passage is about something a little different. Have you ever watched a movie with great actors, great characters, but realized that that movie was nothing about the characters. It was about something greater. It was about maybe a, a deep moral, or it was about connecting emotionally. It's the same kind of thing here. We, can't, we have to look past the characters. We have to look past the set pieces. We have to look past the action and ask, what is God trying to say through his word this morning? We usually have a uh, section of scripture where I uh, ask you to stand and uh, we read God's word together. I, I'm going to be bouncing around a whole lot today. So uh, I apologize, uh, but we, I do want us to stand as we read this one uh, bit of scripture. It's going to be in Genesis 6. Uh, I, I'll give you a second to, to flip over there. Uh, this will be, uh, sorry, uh, I might be wrong on the, there we go, sorry, uh, Genesis 7, 15 through 16. Uh, I'd like to read that together, uh, just because I think it's sort of a big piece of this passage. So uh, if you're there, uh, or even if you're not, want you guys stand with me as we read God's word this morning. We do this out of reverence for the word of God. I can't have you stand on every reference, but uh, I want you to stand and recognize that this is the inerrant, inspired word of God that we are hearing this morning. Uh, the rest of the sermon is just man's words trying to explain what God has said, but this is what God has said. Again, Genesis 7, uh, verses 15 and 16 say this. They went into the ark with Noah, two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand this passage of Scripture. Help us to understand why you have given us this particular story, that Lord, we might remember who you are. Lord we recognize that this is not a story about a man, a flood and a boat, but it's about you. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Get up a seat. It's easy to make this story about Noah, isn't it? I mean, Noah was a pretty great man, it seems. In, ver- in verse 8 of chapter 6, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was favored by God. Easy to think of him as someone who is high and mighty, perhaps. It says that he was also faithful to God. It says that he walked with God. And he, he did all that God had commanded him when he commanded the building of the ark. Noah preached righteousness to a wicked world. 2 Peter 2.5 it's from the New Testament. Peter loved referencing Noah. It seems like he does it once in each of his epistles, and uh, and so it's a, it's this uh, Noah is this preacher of righteousness, and he's not only a righteous man privately, but he's calling people to believe God and live as though God were good and real in in the midst of this incredible wickedness that's going on around him. He's wise. If you look in, in chapter 8, verses 6 through 12, you see this episode where after the flood had come, Noah lets out the raven, and the, the, it, he, he sees that the raven, uh, I believe the raven comes back, and then the dove goes out, and the dove comes back with a, a twig, and then uh, the dove comes, then the, the, he sends the dove again, and the dove never comes back, and he's like, hey, this means there's dry land somewhere for that dove to go. He was wise. He was hardworking. This dude built the ark. We're going to get to, uh, to the ark in a minute, but man, uh, it's a pretty big undertaking, right? Um, he's also hardworking in that he was a man of the soil. He's described as this uh, in verse uh, 20 of chapter 9, he's called a man of the soil. So he knew how to work the ground. He was not perfect, though. Chapter 9, verse 21 tells us of a, an incident, if you will, where Noah... Uh, started a vineyard, and um, after his long journey on the ark and all the hard work of his hands, he uh, overindulged a bit, uh, and he became drunk and to the point of passing out. Um, and it's really like lightly touched upon because uh, I think the the author here he, uh, didn't want to disparage Noah too much, but like it's there. He wasn't a perfect man. But he's he was an important man. He was also the father of mankind as we know it. He still is. Think about that. Like you think about Adam as the progenitor for all mankind, and you're right. But the whole human family tree collapsed again at Noah. And so we can equally say we are all children of Noah. He was also faithful to, despite these immense pressures. In 6.5, it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a terrible place to be. But he was faithful in, this, in spite of all those circumstances. If you think the world's bad now, it might have been just, just as bad if not worse then. But it's not about Noah, is it? The is not about Noah. Noah is a key player, but it's not about him first and foremost. But maybe it's about the flood. No, I don't think it's about the flood, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing, the flood. It's a cataclysm, right? It's wiping the, the whole face of the earth of humankind. In uh, verse 11 of chapter 7, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day, On that day, all the fountains and the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. That fountain of the great deep and the windows of the heavens, these wonderful word pictures that describe what was happening here. This was a cataclysmic event. This wasn't just a rainstorm. It was torrential rain. And it says that the the fountains of the great deep burst forth. So we're not getting rain from above. We're getting water coming up from below. And this flood wiped out everything that breathed air, it says. Look, this, this may or may not have been a global flood, as in like all the dry land covered in water. There's arguments to be made on every side. But what we do know, without any question, is that in verse 23 of chapter 7, it says that he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds and they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And so God says, I'm going to make an end of mankind. He wipes the face of the planet with mankind. And everything that breathed air that was near man or maybe over the, the entire course of the, of the planet. I, I don't know. It seems that as though this was global. Everything wiped clean. But it's not about the flood, is it? Can you imagine that, though? <laughs> Just 40 days, 40 days of nonstop torrential rain and water coming up from the ground. Like... What an incredible sight! Like if you've ever seen flood damage, if you've ever seen some of the, the videos or even been to where like Katrina hit, uh, years ago, like that's awful, isn't It makes it uninhabitable, but this water rose over the mountains. What an incredible cataclysm. three days of nonstop torrential rain and water gushing out of the ground, covering mountaintops, and Noah and his family floating safely with their menagerie of animals. Oh, and the the boat, the boat, the boat that Noah was in, that was a magnificent thing. Maybe we should focus on the boat. Noah, in these early stages of mankind, built a ship that dwarfed most, if not all, wooden ships that would come after it. Chapter 6, verse 15 says, and this is how you're to make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, and its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You might not know what a cubit is. It's about 18 inches. So that's 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half, if you want to bring it into modern-day terms. Big boat. (laughs) It's a big boat. Structurally speaking, the ark was a miracle because it surpassed every ship that came after it until we started building steel-hulled ships. Isn't that interesting that it's early stage of mankind that God gave Noah this design for an ark that could not be built by the best shipwrights, even in our day, with wood. For a boat made out of wood, it's, it's just out of this world. And then, what did Noah do? Noah didn't just have a boat, right? He had a purpose for the boat. What was the purpose? He brought all the animals in, right? Man, how, how Noah figured out what animals to bring or if they just kind of walked on board, I don't know. This is a crazy scene no matter how you imagine it, right? This is storytelling. You're allowed to imagine a little bit, right? They just walked up on board or he went out and like captured them or he like just asked nicely. I, I don't know. But he brings on all these animals, countless animals, seven pairs of all clean animals, one pair of unclean animals, and seven pairs of all birds. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 3. Real talk? I have no idea how this worked. Like, rationally speaking. A naturalistic view of Noah's ark really doesn't hold up. I I read a whole paper as uh, as part of uh, researching for this sermon that Uh, went into great detail about why it was physically impossible for this ark to exist. That it was physically impossible for it to contain all the life that was necessary in order to repopulate the world and all these other wonderful uh, things that they tried to call out as just absolutely impossible. I mean, it's, it's crazy just how much life had to be on that ark. Look, I don't know how it worked, though, but all I can say is that God did it. God did it. His omnipotence not only created the flood, it also upheld the boat, brought the animals to the boat, and brought them safely through the flood. Now we're getting a little bit closer to the real meaning of the story. This story is not at all about Noah, as I've said. It's not about anything else. It's, it's not about Noah as a key character. It's not about the flood. It's not about the boat. The story here is about the God who preserved a remnant for himself through his righteous judgment. That's the real moral of the story. And this is a core truth. I mean, if you take nothing else with you today, take this with you that as you read the narrative of scripture, remember that God inspired those narratives so that you could know him. That's important. It's not just a fun story. It's not just something where we get to go, oh, well, like, it's nice that you know, Noah's family survived the flood. Yay. No, it's there for a purpose. It's there to show you who God is and what he has done based on who he is. Because we can look at God's actions and go, this is then who he is. Can't we? We are what we do. God saved for himself a remnant. He was faithful to his people. John five thirty nine says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. See, the story of Noah isn't about you. It's not about Noah. It's not about people in general. It's not about structural engineering or naval engineering. It's not about the animals. It's about God and God alone. No doubt we can know ourselves by reading these passages, we we can know Noah, we can learn about the flood, but God didn't inspire the scriptures so that we could just know Noah or understand what happened with the flood. He gave us every word in the scriptures so that we could know him and so that we could come to salvation in Jesus Christ. That's why he gave us the scriptures. So what does the narrative of Noah tell us about God then? What by God's actions and his attitudes can we learn about God himself? Look with me at Genesis 6, 5 through 7. It says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Whew. What a scathing passage, huh? Now don't get hung up here when it says that the Lord regretted or was grieved as if he was surprised by the wickedness of mankind. He was not. These are human terms, though, and they're helpful in telling us the story of who God is. They're helpful in making him approachable and helping us to see how he feels in a way that we can understand. They're called anthropopathic terms, if you want to write that down. That's That's fun trivia for game night or whatever you want. I don't know if that fits into a Scrabble word or not. It's probably too long. And that's important here, that God shows himself in human terms at times, that we would understand him better. A lot of people like to uh, hate on the song Reckless Love, and there's a lot of reasons to hate on that song. Uh, but uh, but, but the, the word reckless is something that people just harp on all the time. Guess what? Like, It's a human term trying to describe what God does in a qualitative sense. It's not meant to be a technical term. Like, no, God is never reckless, never reckless in in reality. But it seems reckless to us. His love seems reckless to us. Maybe we shouldn't criticize so much. The scriptures are filled with these sorts of words. What this passage is trying to relay is that God is displeased by sin, and this displeasure is like our sense of regret and grief. If you've ever watched a child or friend run headlong into disaster, you kind of, you get a sense of what God is trying to convey through his word here to you today. This sense of regret and grief was so strong, in fact, that God determined to remove mankind from the world. As God, that's his prerogative. We're his created creatures. Everything is his creation. It's his prerogative, as creator. He says, you know what? It's, it might be better if I just put a stop to this now because it's only going to get... This passage then isn't about Noah, is it? It's about God's sorrow for sin. But it's also about God's faithfulness toward those who trust him. Look at verses eight and nine of chapter six. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Like I said, this passage isn't about Noah, but he plays a key part here. In this passage, he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now, this sort of statement, as you might read it, never implies perfection. Noah was not a perfect man. He wasn't the kind of person that, that was absolutely sinless in every way. This sort of statement is a qualitative difference between Noah and his neighbors. His neighbors lived in reckless, wanton abandon to just unrepentant, high-handed sin. And Noah sought to do what was right according to God's will. It wasn't uh, some sort of perfect righteousness that qualified him for God's grace. He didn't make it to the level that's required. No but he was a righteous man in comparison to his fellow man. But in the second way, there's a second way in which he was righteous. And we see this in the last part of verse nine. It says, Noah walked with God. So while he was comparatively righteous, Noah was also a man who walked with God. He trusted God. Later on, we see when, Abraham or Abram, at the time, Abraham is described. It says that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Noah was the same way. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. If he is a righteous man, in the eyes of God, it is only by grace through faith. There's uh, something to be said here, though, about Noah's faith and faithfulness. He wasn't perfect, but he definitely sought after God. He preached righteousness to his generation, and he lived by faith. And yet, Noah was only imperfectly doing what the entire race had been created to do. Just looking at the qualitative righteousness here. He might have been righteous and blameless in a relative sense, but even if he had been perfectly righteous and blameless, he would have only been doing what he had been created to do. It's only bringing you to justification. Justification. There's no additional grace. There's no glory. There's no nothing else. It's just, you're just doing what you've been created to do. Look, God could have wiped out Noah and his whole family for just cause. They were sinners just like everybody else. Noah wasn't perfect. Because God called Adam and Eve to be perfect. They called him. He called them to be completely and utterly obedient, but they weren't. Likewise, your attempts to walk with God don't make you good enough to deserve salvation. It doesn't make me good enough to deserve salvation. We don't deserve salvation. If we met the bar, then it would just be doing what we were created to do. We don't deserve glory. God has mercy on you. He has mercy on me despite my imperfections. And so he saves you and gives you all the benefits of being part of his family. Gives you all the benefits of that Christ receives simply out of his abundant love for his creation. It's just grace. It's all grace. 100% of it. God is gracious beyond our understanding. And so, as I said, like Abraham later, every Christian here today and Noah and every faithful person throughout scripture, we all have believed God and it is counted to us as righteousness. I would also note here that faith is not a work. Faith is something that God gives. It's a gift so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2. So God ordained to save Noah. Noah. He could have done this however he wanted, but he chose to have Noah build an ark. He said, I, I see this man, he seeks after me, and I love him with my heart. He said, I love I love this messed up guy, but he he loves me. And and you you we could talk about predestination all you want later on. But like he, he sees Noah and he says, This man, I'm going to save him out of the abundance of my grace. I'm gonna save this guy and his family. Like I said, he could do this however he wanted, but he had him build an ark. Like I said before, the, the ark was huge. The, heart, the ark was nuts for uh, that time and place and really for all of history. It's far larger than people t- today believe that it could be possible for a wooden ship, like I said. and To be honest with you, I, just, I don't need them to believe that it's possible at this point. I don't, I don't need people to believe that it's possible in a naturalistic sense. I just need to know that God made it possible. That's good enough for me. In fact, I read an article, like I said, that, that had like 20 printed pages just going into depth about why this is absolutely impossible. But then guess what? I remembered who this passage is about. Because It's not about Noah's shipbuilding abilities. It's about God, the one who brings his people safely Because like I said, the story is about God. And in in case we might forget, he does remind us. We read these these, uh, verses just a moment ago. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. uh, Says this, they went in the ark with Noah, with two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded them, or him. And the Lord shut him in. One of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. I love that phrase. He's like, look, in the design of the ark, Noah told, or God told Noah to build a door into the side of the ship. Into the side of the ship. It wasn't a ramp that goes up over the, the, the hole, right? It was build a door into the side of the ship. So what he did was say, hey, Noah, build an impossible ship and then put a hole in the side. Cool. All right. But it says it here. And the Lord shut him in. Only God made this all possible. Like I said, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture because uh, ultimately that God sh- uh, set, uh, had shut him in is an amazing gift of grace. And it, it shows us something about who God is. Uh, Like I said, remember this, like you've built this boat. Just imagine with me, you've built this impossible. It's, you know, it's, it's taken, um, some would say that maybe had taken the whole 120 years that God had said, like mankind will only live for 120 years. He's not talking about average age, by the way. He's talking about the time between when he said, Hey Noah, we're going to have a flood till the time that the flood came. He's like, I'm going to give you 120 years. Here's the span of time that you can, that you have to build this ark. So Noah spent 120 years building this ark. Maybe more or less, right? Maybe he dragged his feet a little bit. I don't know, right? But he spent this time building this ark and it's an impossible boat. And you've got all the animals on there. (laughs) Some miraculous way they've found their way walking over to the, I don't know. I don't know how this works, right? All the animals walk up two by two and, uh, and they come into the ark and you've got the place filled. You've got... The whole thing is covered in pitch, this uh, hydrophobic uh, substance that uh, prevents leaks, helps it stay buoyant, things like that. You don't get waterlogged. And you've done all of this homework. You've made all these improvements. You've done all the stuff you needed to do as God designed it, but you have that huge gaping problem right in the side of your boat. Even more from from what I've read uh, about uh, a boat building, it's not just the fact that there's a hole over here that you need to somehow put a door into, right? I mean, there's there's a problem of leaks and things like that, but like the structural forces on something that large at sea is a problem. Like the the biggest wooden ships that uh, that I read about uh, actually had like um, had like uh, hinges and things like that built into the ship, so they would actually like snake along the water so that they could flex a bit, right? This is just a big boat, right? This is just wood. Maybe he built some of that stuff in. Maybe God told him how to do it, but ultimately having that big hole in the side might have been a little bit of a structural engineering problem. You know what I mean? A little bit of a problem. You got this big hole in the side of your boat, but ultimately sealing Noah's salvation was not Noah's job. You catch that? It wasn't Noah's job to seal his salvation. God had given him the boat. That was a gift of grace. Perhaps he had participated in the building, sure. But like God had given him everything that he needed, the gopher wood, the pitch, the whatever else. Some people actually said that, like, look, if, if things weren't dying much at that point or at all at that point, we don't know how much death was going on. Guess what? There wouldn't have been any pitch around. Because it's made by like animal stuff being heated and compressed over time, and, and that's what makes pitch. And they're like, well, this is impossible. No, but, like, God just provided the pitch. I don't know what kind of pitch it was. Maybe it was, uh, you know, maybe it was vegan pitch. Uh, you know, I don't know. But God created it and provided it for him, right? So you've covered this whole thing. You you could probably try to patch some of those holes, but man. Ultimately, sealing Noah's salvation was not Noah's job. It was God's job. When the time came, God himself took the door and sealed Noah and his family in perfectly. He said, I'm going to seal this shut for you. I'm going to make sure that your door doesn't become a sieve. He seals it with the very pitch that he had commanded Noah to make the rest of the boat with, to make sure it doesn't leak. Just imagine that. Like, I don't know whether this was a, a physical manifestation of God as, uh, as we sometimes see Christophanes, right? Like in the, in the Old Testament where Jesus appears before his incarnation. Maybe, maybe he's the one who put the door into place. He was a carpenter after all. Or maybe, maybe this is you know, hand of God kind of stuff. Just picks up the door and locks it in place. I don't know. But ultimately, God does the sealing in. Likewise, God seals us in. If God wants his people saved, then he saves them, and he seals them with the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ today, you have the Holy Spirit. What an amazing gift. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are sealed. Given that sign, the Lord says, this is mine. I'm going to preserve it. I'm going to seal this for all eternity. What an amazing gift. And then, as the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened, the ark began to float. Gradually at first, perhaps more quickly later on. Man, what an amazing thought process. Like, to, to think, like, he probably built this thing on dry land. This is the first time it's ever really floated at all, right? He's building this thing flat on the ground. And he's like, man, uh, if God doesn't send the rain, it's never going to float because, like, it's just going to sit here. He sends the rain, and this thing, this giant, gargantuan, impossible boat starts floating with all these animals on it. Think about the biomass. Like, I don't know how you, I don't, if you ever had, like, I don't know anything about this, but I imagine that. Uh, I've, I've heard from other people that, like, if you have horses on a trailer, like, it's different than having, like, like live weight is different than, than real, like, not real, but, like, inanimate weight, right? Imagine the biomass, like, moving on the boat. The animals just kind of restless a little bit, but, like, you know, you've got, you know, 14 gophers, uh, you know, moving around in one spot on the boat. I don't know. And then, like, all of their friends moving with them. I don't know. Like, it, it seems like an impossible thing. And, and then you realize that this doesn't just start to float, but it begins floating very, 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 very high. Like it's now floating above the tops of the mountain, like flying through the air but on water. Like This is crazy stuff. <laughs> and you might think that, oh, well, this is only 40 days and 40 nights. Maybe you thought that that's what was going on here. No, 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 no. If you read the text, and you think about it carefully, you look at the beginning time and the end time, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But they were on that ark for a year. For a year! On this giant, floating, impossible boat, high above the mountains. What an incredible gift that God provided for Noah and his family us, through him. Look at Genesis 8, 14 through 19. I'm just going to let it tell itself as part of the story here. It says, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives will be with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons with his, and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. The end of the sort of ark story, isn't it? Like we've spent a year. How, how they could maintain for a year, I don't even know. God miraculously provides. And then at the end of that year, they find themselves shipwrecked, really, on, on Mount Ararat. And after some time, the waters subside. And then Noah actually uh, takes the top off of the, uh, of the ark. Uh, it's a covering of some sort. Uh, and then like they kind of hang out for, for about 50 days, uh, just waiting for God to say, hey, now is the time. You can leave the ark go into this new world that has been reset. And Noah wasn't blind to the fact that his family and all these animals had been so preserved by God. What an amazing gift. Think about that for a second. On a boat, the last eight people in reality. The last eight people. On this giant impossible boat floating through the sky, essentially. Landing on a mountain, letting all the all the animals go out. They go out peace of, peaceably. Like these are things that might want to eat each other. I don't, you just like you just let them out, and they're like, "Hey, we're good. We're going out by families and like linking arm in arm and walking." You know, I don't know. What an amazing gift! And, and Noah sees this is an amazing gift of God's grace. He's like, "There is one thing, one thing only that I must do next." Chapter 8, verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. His next step was worship. He's like, I know what I need to do. It's crazy that he would take some of what he had preserved for, for that year and then burn it as an offering. These animals that he had kept for that time. He says, no, 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 there's, there's only one fit offering. He recognized that he needed to do something in worship, and God had already instantiated, think about that, before Noah, he had already given them the sacrificial system. You ever think about that? Like, you think that's in, that's in Moses, that like, they get the law in Moses? Uh, and they, they're like, oh, no, well now here's the sacrificial. No, no, no. The sacrificial system actually started right at the garden. Right? God killed an animal and gave them skins. That life is required for your sin. Noah gets out and he says, I, I need to worship. I need to recognize that God has saved me by his grace alone. He's like, I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to worship God how God has intended me to worship. God tells us how to worship him, by the way. He does. He tells us how to worship him, and this is the way that Noah knew to worship. Like, I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to worship God by making a burnt offering. If you've been saved by the blood of Christ and sealed with the indwelling spirit, then you have nothing left to do but to worship. You were held to an impossible standard. You are. You, you were. <laughs> I don't know what the tense should be there, but as human beings, we were created to be perfect. We were created to live according to God's law. If you look at the Ten Commandments and you go, well, oh, I measure up, you're not reading them. right? You get, you're called to this, but guess what? You're kind of, maybe you're here. You're here, or you're here. Or you would say with Paul, I'm down here. But Noah said, no, no, no. I realize I have nothing nothing left to do but to worship. And likewise, we too have nothing left to do but to worship. We couldn't make it. And so God sent his only son to die for sinners, that whosoever believes in him would be saved. He says, this is all grace. Just like this salvation that uh, that God wrought for Noah, he makes salvation for us in Christ. He says, this is all of grace. Here it is for you. Now all you must do is respond in the way that makes complete sense. If someone does something by grace for you, what do you do? You thank them. Out of thankfulness, you worship. You give your life for that. You give pieces of your life. Think about that. If somebody, if somebody gives you whatever it is you need right now, whatever the greatest need in your life is, somebody gives that to you right now, you're gonna, you're gonna have a sense of like, I don't know how to receive this, but like, if you needed it, then you probably couldn't pay for it. If you, if you needed these things, then you probably couldn't get them on your own. If somebody says, hey, this, this is just this is a gift of grace to you. In, in a small way, worship is the only right response. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything. And I'm going to do the best I have, everything that I, I do with this thing that you've given me. I'm going to do the best I can with it. God gives us life, the entire thing, eternal life. Do the best you can with it. What's the best you can do? Live according to your purpose. What's your purpose? Love God, worship God, and enjoy him forever. That's it. You might think that Christianity is like, somehow it's a, it's a little, like it's like legalism, right? It's like, okay, well you do this and then you get this. No, 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 it's not that, it's just worship. We have a moral code that we try to uphold because we know that's who our God is. We live in thankfulness. We, we don't slander one another. We don't gossip. We, we don't commit sexual immorality and things like that. At least I hope we don't. Like, you know, we, look, we're, 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 we're real creatures. We're, we're sinful people. We, we're gonna stumble, but like, our heart, it becomes for God, doesn't it? Everything that we do then, Becomes worship. It should become worship. Breathing the air right now can become worship because you recognize who provided it and that you're breathing with lungs and a body that will be glorified on the last day. So we sing and we speak and we live and we eat and we breathe in worship to God as a living sacrifice. I talked about Romans 12 1 and 2 uh, last couple of weeks. We live unto God. And so from, from this point in the story, I, I want to close it out a little bit. From this point in the story, God goes on to make a covenant of divine forbearance with Noah. He promises never to blot out the human race again. He gives us the sign of the rainbow as a, as a reminder of that covenant. little side note on the rainbow. Um, perhaps even when we see this sign abused to represent something else, it could be a reminder to us of God passing over sin for a time so that all of his people might be saved. We should reclaim that. Of course, Noah also goes on to make a fool of himself after this. Um, the episode with the wine that I was talking about earlier. If you ever thought, hey, maybe um, you know, wine in ancient days was weaker than wine now, you tell that to Noah. Um, Noah had, had a little bit of an issue. And while both of those things are, are incredibly important, I, I think you should read them today as, as part of that homework that I've given you already, uh, I want to leave you with that pure response that Noah has after leaving the ark. It's fresh, right? It's that fresh feeling of worship. It's like, okay, I see everything that God has done. I, can, I see that he has wiped the world clean of everything, but he's brought me out. He's saved me. The passage, as I've said, is ultimately about God. It's about God's hatred of sin. It's about his gracious salvation. It's about the preservation of God's people for himself. And all of that, like I've said, is pointing us to Christ, who lived a perfect life life and died a sinner's death and then was raised to glorified life. This Savior that we have is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory worthy of everything that we have. And so if you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins today, then you are saved from the flood of God's wrath that will one day be poured out. And so you and I and people across this room and throughout the world can, along with Noah and Abraham and so many others who have come before us, we can worship the God who saves his people by his sovereign grace alone. I don't have 10 points for you today on how to get a better life out there. What I do have is the truth that God will save his people. And from here, I just ask you to go and worship. Worship by submitting to God in obedience. Worship by singing songs together here at home, in the car, wherever. Pray. Talk to him. Bring your needs to him. That's worship too. Spend your lives not repaying him for what he's done, but in thanksgiving for what he's done. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at MosaicRVA.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about you.